Now, this was not Paul's first visit to the city of Lystra. He'd been there several years earlier, as we read about in Acts chapter 14. And so hostile, so volatile was the reaction to Paul's gospel message that they dragged him outside the city and stoned him. They attempted to murder him. And yet Paul survived this attempt on his life. And what did he do? He returned to the city to continue preaching the gospel, making many disciples in the name of Jesus. This man, Timothy, was likely one such disciple who came to faith shortly or at this time. And several years later, the Apostle Paul returns to this city and finds that this man, Timothy, is still a faithful believer in Christ, and he is well-respected amongst the local church. So Paul selects this man to be a companion with him and Silas on their missionary journey. You see, Paul was so eager to have Timothy as a partner that he even went to the great length of circumcising him so that the Jews would associate him with the faith and not with his pagan Greek father. And this man, Timothy, would remain very dear to the Apostle Paul for the rest of his life. At the time Paul wrote this letter, he was in a Roman prison cell awaiting execution. He was on death row a fate that Timothy himself would also eventually face. And at this time, Timothy was leading the church in Ephesus, a church that he and Paul had established together over a three-year period. And this letter, this pastoral, wonderful letter to Timothy, is Paul's last word to his beloved son, and most likely his last word to the church itself. So let's dive in to the first seven verses of this wonderful letter. And as we do, there are three points we will consider. Firstly, we have eternal life and peace with God. Secondly, we have a faith that is too good. And lastly, fan the flames. Let's begin. So in the opening verse of Paul's letter we see and we can glean a lot of information about who Paul is. We can see his name, his role in the church, his mission, and his motivation. In perhaps what is a similar modern equivalent, we all often have signature blocks on the bottom of our email that we send from our work, and they give a little bit of information about who we are. In fact, here's mine. So my name is Marty Robinson. I work for the Toowoomba Regional Council, which normally comes up as a picture below. I'm an environmental officer, which doesn't tell you that much, and I work in development services. So as you can see, there's some information here we can glean about who I am and what I do. Now let's consider how Paul describes himself. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul's description is that job description that sorry is that of an apostle, one of the very select few commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself to be an authoritative witness to His resurrected glory to all the nations. 
And Paul specifically had a mission to go outside the land of Israel and proclaim Christ to the known world. And this job description has nothing to do with his own personal merit, holiness or competence. You see, Paul didn't get a promotion or take a job interview and he didn't get this job because of all the good work he'd done in the church. No, far from it. Paul was actively persecuting and overseeing the murder of Christians when he got his call to ministry. So this call to be an apostle is purely by the will of God and the will of God alone. He was rescued from his own evil desires to destroy God's people and instead his heart was regenerated by the Holy Spirit to know love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the same way that all who belong to Christ are called by faith. It's not just the evil guys or the bad eggs like Paul. No, the Bible is clear that without intervention, we are all like Paul, dead in our sins. It's quite popular these days not to talk about sin. We might often use words such as brokenness, And while there is some truth to that terminology, sin does break us, our relationship with God and each other. It falls short of how serious sin really is. American theologian Darrell B. Harrison puts it this way. He says, A society that sees itself simply as broken as opposed to dead will invariably conclude that society merely needs to be fixed rather than redeemed. But brothers and sisters, praise God, we have not merely been fixed of our brokenness. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We were dead in our sins, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But in love, God regenerates the hearts of those he chooses and enables his people to love and serve him as they ought to. And even more than this, he gives us the promise of eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words given to us in John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Eternal life to all who believe in God's Son, Jesus Christ. The Son who took the punishment for our sins upon the cross and rose to new life in glory and power. And so if you haven't already heeded that call of God before to believe in his son, don't delay. Take up that call to follow Jesus today. Don't reject him. Don't remain dead in your sin and rightfully condemned to the wrath of God. Accept this wonderful mercy in Christ Jesus. Because look at the result of this wonderful salvation that we read in our text in verse 2. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. In Christ, by faith in his death, 
and resurrection. We have grace. We have mercy. We have peace with our God and the creator of our universe. We can now have assurance that our sin and rebellion before him is forgiven by his unmerited favor towards us, his grace. We can rest in the knowledge that we don't get what our sins deserve because he has poured that righteous wrath upon his son on the cross. We have mercy. And we can stand before the very throne of God with confidence. No longer his enemies, because the hostility between us and God has been removed by the cross. Because like his son Jesus, in him we are dearly beloved of God. We have peace with God the Father. This is the great promise of life that defines who the Apostle Paul is. And the desire of his heart is to proclaim the good news of the gospel so that many more may hear and believe and be recipients of these wonderful promises of grace, of mercy and peace and life with God through Jesus Christ. Now, I know some of you, but I don't know all of you, but some of the younger members here may be familiar with the words of the Jedi Code from the Star Wars universe. Now, the Jedi were guardians of peace and justice in the galaxy, and they had this code which governed their conduct and how they saw the universe. And it reads, There is no emotion. There is peace. There is no ignorance. There is knowledge. There is no passion. There is serenity. There is no chaos. There is harmony. There is no death. There is the force. Now, just because you're seeing this within a church building, don't think that this is the word of God. George Lucas himself said that Star Wars catered to people of all different faiths. But this is not God's word. So for the Christian, I would like to take the liberty of paraphrasing this in a way that will help us understand the blessings that we have in Christ. It might read from the text, There is no fear. There is grace. There is no judgment. There is mercy. There is no hostility. There is peace. There is no death. There is life. For all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. And this brings us to our second point this morning, a faith that is too good. Now, brothers and sisters, those who know the Lord, we know that the gospel of Jesus really is good news. In fact, it is too good. And I mean that in at least two ways this morning. You see, the first is the news that we can have peace with God through the gospel is so marvellous that it seems almost too good to be true. But it is true, and it's confirmed in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second way in which this gospel is too good is that we cannot, in good conscience, keep it to ourselves. It is too good not to share. To give an example, I am a die-hard, tragic supporter of the Canterbury-Bankstown Bulldogs in the National Rugby League. Let's go back. You'll have to imagine a picture of me smiling in my Bulldogs uniform. 
But anyway, you probably don't need to see that anyway. But a team, this is a team that's had a lot of success in the past when I was younger. But as sadly, to my disheartenment, sat at the bottom of the ladder for many years now. And so on the very rare occasion when my team wins a game, and I do mean rare, I'm overjoyed. I'm sitting in my couch and I run to the other side of the house and I tell Susie, who's doing something completely different because she doesn't care, and I share my jubilation. And when she doesn't care, I ring my dad, I ring my best friends and tell them, we actually won a game, how good is that? And I'm sure that we all have one of those interests in our lives too that we get really excited about. For our church in particular, it's the sale at Spotlight or at Lincraft that gets a lot of our members excited. Or maybe it's good boating conditions on the weekend for when we need to go fishing. That's something that you want to spread the word about, isn't it? That's something that gets you really excited and you want to tell other people all about it. But brothers and sisters, how much more thrilling, exciting and marvellous is the mercy of God in the gospel of Jesus. That is truly good news worth telling people about, isn't it? And unlike our sporting teams, or the sail at Lincraft, or the swell in the surf, or the boating conditions on the weekend, the gospel is something that everybody needs to hear. Because it is eternal life to all who believe. And so we pass it on. We share it with our loved ones, with our friends, with our colleagues, and with our neighbours. For faith is not something that we keep hidden or to ourselves. And as we'll see, we see in our world, some people do want us to keep our faith to ourselves, hidden, personal, private. But God's word tells us that it is too good to keep hidden. Look at the first half of verse 3, where Paul says, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did. We see here in Paul's text that he is the recipient of a faith that is intergenerational. His forefathers have not only served God and put their faith in him, but they've taught their faith to their children who've also served him and put their trust in the Lord. And we see the same pattern in the life of Timothy from verse 5. Paul tells him that I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and... I am persuaded, now lives in you also. Brothers and sisters, do you see the fruits of faithfulness here in Timothy's family? His grandmother, Lois, loved and served the Lord. She taught her daughter, Eunice, to do likewise. And Eunice, despite having an unbelieving pagan husband, taught and mentored her son Timothy in the faith. These great women lived in humble obedience to God's word in the scriptures. They taught their children about the Lord as it was commanded to them from the law of Moses. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. 
Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. You see, by the time Timothy was a man, he was so well taught in the scriptures that he immediately recognized this Christ that Paul proclaimed as the promised Messiah of God's people. He became a disciple and follower of Jesus himself. And you see here in the text, brothers and sisters, that the best legacy we can possibly leave the next generation is the knowledge of God and his mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is the only legacy that will truly last because through knowing Jesus, you gain eternal life in him. Listen to the words of the American preacher, Costi Hinn, on this subject. Now, some people may recognize that name, Hinn. Costi is the nephew of the infamous Benny Hinn, the false teacher. And Costi himself was a supporter of his uncle's ministry in his younger years. But he came to a saving faith in Christ himself and now leads a flourishing ministry titled For the Gospel that is committed to the truth about God as revealed in his word. He makes this statement about the core mission of Christian parents. Costi said this as he challenged the church on American Father's Day. He said, fathers can teach their sons how to excel in business, invest in Bitcoin and play baseball. Yet if they fail to teach them the Bible, they have not equipped them to succeed in what matters most on earth and in eternity. That is quite a challenge that he's laying down, isn't it? But this is not new teaching. This command has already been in Scripture. It has already been commanded. It has always been commanded. And yet, if you're not a parent, don't think that this gets you off the hook either. Because this mandate goes even beyond our blood relatives to the covenant people of God. Let's take a look deeper at the first half of verse 2. Here Paul writes, To Timothy, my dear son. Do you see that intimacy between Timothy and Paul? My dear son, he calls Timothy. Despite not being physically related to one another, Paul views Timothy as a son to him in the Lord, in the same way a father would see his own flesh and blood. And this is one of the glorious results of being part of the body of Christ, the church, that we are all united together as a spiritual family in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the mandate to teach, disciple and equip each other goes beyond our own household, beyond our own flesh and blood, to the spiritual household of the church. That's what we mean when we call each other brothers and sisters, because we are united in the grace, mercy and promise of life that we share in Jesus Christ. Therefore, in love, we pray constantly for one another that God may mature us and we may rejoice together 
in what Christ has done for us. Because it is God alone that we have seen who regenerates hearts and causes us to find our satisfaction and joy in loving and serving the Lord Jesus. You see an example of this joy in Paul in the passage as he intercedes for Timothy. Night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Brothers and sisters, this is at the heart of Christian discipleship. Not just sharing God's word with one another, but maintaining faithful and consistent prayer for each other in all seasons. Trusting that God will continue and complete the work within each and every one of us. Trusting God to do the work. You see, Paul in this instance knows the, the grief that Timothy is experiencing, being separated from himself, his spiritual father in the faith. And so in love, he pours out himself in prayer to God, our Father in heaven, that Timothy would not only maintain his faith in the Lord, but grow in his faith and mature and bear fruit. And notice too that it is in Timothy's growing faith and maturity that Paul finds his greatest joy. And many of us can relate to this when we see other believers, our brothers and sisters around us, becoming more mature in their faith and love of Jesus, more knowledgeable of God's word, more zealous and loving in their service. And we see that in the body of believers here in this church, many generations of families loving and serving the Lord together. Therefore, the challenge from this text is to keep loving and serving the Lord together and commit one another to prayer so that our Heavenly Father may be growing all of us in love and faithfulness to our Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this promised life in the gospel is too good to simply keep to ourselves, to our own personal lives, or even within our own household. We must seek to spread the gospel so that God's word may spread and bear fruit, and so that we may be filled with joy together with what God is doing. And this brings us to our final point from the text fanning the flames. Now one of the great blessings of belonging to Jesus is that we are not left alone in this world to serve the Lord in our own strength. Because every believer, I repeat, every believer has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, God himself dwelling within us. Now the Holy Spirit is active in the life of the believer in many ways. And one of the ways the Holy Spirit acts amongst us is to lavish the body of Christ with spiritual gifts. These gifts are endless, but they include teaching, encouraging, wisdom, hospitality, discernment, 
speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, serving, showing mercy, administration, and the list goes on and on. We find these gifts scattered throughout Paul's letters in the New Testament. One such example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to look at the preface to this list where Paul outlines the purpose of the spiritual gifts that God lavishes amongst us. He writes, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone it is the same God at work. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are all given different spiritual gifts. But they are all given by the same God, the same Spirit, for the same purpose. And that purpose is the common good, the building of God's church. And none of these gifts are redundant either. Paul goes on to say that each member of the body makes a vital contribution to the life of the church. We all need each other and our gifts for the body of Christ to grow and mature. So how does this relate to today's passage, you may ask? Well, look at verse 6. Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Fan into flame your gift, Paul instructs Timothy. You see, Paul and the elders of the church have recognized your spiritual gifting and set you apart to be a leader, an evangelist within God's church. Paul has already told Timothy this same command in chapter 4 of his first letter. And the command is not just to Timothy, but to all believers, to all of us. The command is not to neglect the calling and gifting that God has placed on your life. He wants us to use our gifts, give them oxygen, set them ablaze. Now this next illustration some of you may have first-hand experience of. Because last time I was amongst this community was at the family camp. And on the Saturday night, uh, we had a bit of a problem with the campfire. You see, the way the fire pit was designed was that there was a circle of bricks about half a metre in diameter and about half a metre tall. And inside this circle, there was a layer of corrugated iron. So there was no way for air to get in. So to get this fire going, we had to quite literally fan the flames with a foil tray that we had on hand in the kitchen. And some of you may remember better than others, but I remember that this process took the better part of about 45 minutes. Fanning the flame, taking turns to get the fire high enough so that the flame could receive oxygen and burn of its own accord. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, our spiritual gifts are at risk of smouldering and being ineffective if we don't neglect them, if we don't give them the oxygen that they need 
to burn brightly. If we neglect to use them, if we neglect to develop and mature these gifts that God has blessed us with, Because you see, we are all given unique and amazing spiritual gifts through the same God, the same Spirit, for the same purpose. Yours will be different to Timothy's. Yours will be different to the person sitting next to you this morning. But they are all indispensable to the life of the church. So therefore, whatever your gifts are, fan them into flames. Use them regularly for the common good of God's people and the building of his kingdom here on earth. Because look at the results of what occurs when we fan into flame our gifts. Paul writes, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. You see, the same spirit that God has given to all believers is the same spirit that enables us to overcome our fears. The same spirit that empowers us to serve the Lord and helps us to live self-disciplined lives to God's glory. And I'll repeat it again. This Holy Spirit dwells within everyone who puts their faith in the gospel of Jesus. So be encouraged to serve with boldness, knowing that God has equipped us with everything that we need through his Holy Spirit. And when we continue with the next sermon in this letter, we'll look specifically at the power of God's Spirit in proclaiming the gospel to the world. But as we conclude this morning, let's reconsider some previous points of application in this text here. Firstly, we center your thoughts on the incredible promise of life in Jesus. As we read how Paul introduces himself, we are challenged to center our thoughts on who we are and what our life is in Christ. Just look at this description he provides. He is an apostle by God's will according to the promised life in Jesus. So as believers in the Lord, our identity is first one of God's holy and chosen people, recipients of his marvelous grace and mercy and heirs to eternal life with Christ in his kingdom. But if we're honest, how often do we meditate on how incredible and glorious this great truth is of those in Christ. In our evening service in Toowoomba, we often look at Ligonier Ministries' teachings. And we went through a series by Dr. Sinclair Ferguson on what it means to be in Christ. And something he said in a talk a while back, I think I'll always remember... He asks the same question to every candidate for the ministry that he meets. And this question is, what do you think of when your mind is empty? Or in other words, what really motivates the desires and thoughts in your heart? And in asking this question, he is challenging us all to meditate on the joy of our promised life in Christ daily. 
not to allow ourselves to become so distracted by the world around us that we never think about Jesus except on Sunday or in our home groups or daily devotions. No, the challenge is to consistently and constantly center our thoughts on the incredible promised life in Jesus. Then we will be ready to teach and encourage others around us. Secondly, be a disciple maker through prayer, teaching and example. Our second application point is to be diligent in our commitment to making disciples of Jesus. We do this first and foremost through our prayer life. Diligent and faithful prayers for others, setting them apart to our loving Heavenly Father to do the work in their hearts and minds. Interceding for them on their behalf to come to a mature and life-saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I might I say I'm incredibly encouraged by these books that are being handed out to parents because it is such an enormous task and such a joy to be discipling the next generation. So I do commend you for that. But we must be diligent always in teaching and passing on the knowledge of God to others in whatever way God has gifted us to do so, not just in our own household, because we've seen the gospel is too good to keep to ourselves, no matter what the world will tell us. And so we must be diligent in our own lives and witness as well. Like the Apostle Paul was able to say, he served God with a clear conscience. We must imitate Paul. We must be faithful in obedience to God's word so that our ministry will be effective by the very fact that the gospel is adorned in the life that we live. And lastly, we must be bold in service. Quite often, I'm sure most of you, I do, feel very unsure or even scared when serving God, especially publicly. You might be pleased to know that you're in very good company this morning. You see, Timothy, despite all the wonderful gifts that God had given him, had a weakness of being incredibly timid. And yet God in his grace strengthened and equipped him through his spirit with everything that he needed for ministry. A spirit that gave him power, gave him love, and gave him self-discipline. We too have that spirit. So go forward with boldness to serve the Lord. He will provide everything we need and more. And like the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, encourage and remind your brothers and sisters that we have everything we need through God's Holy Spirit. Everything we need to serve the Lord, to proclaim his great gospel to the nations and to make disciples in his name. All for the glory and praise of our great Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful as we read your word to us this morning that you have brought us from death to life through the promised grace, mercy and peace in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray 
for all in the church that we would come to a mature faith and that we would have a heart to share the gospel with others and disciple others in your word. We thank you for the way in which you have passed your faith down through different generations throughout your redemptive history. We pray that you would continue to use us, your people, to play that role as well and to pass your gospel down from generation to generation, from workplace to workplace, from household to household. And as we do this, Heavenly Father, pray that we would remember that you have given us your Holy Spirit to dwell within us and help us to be bold in this knowledge as we serve our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we pray this for his name's sake. Amen.